Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of Quark Power Meters and other kick-ass bicycle systems. Quark Power Meters Collector and ShockWiz help you ride faster, improve your performance, and share your passion. Find out more at Quark.com. The major difference between Tour de France and amateur bike racing, or even one-day racing, is essentially just the diversity of goals that everybody has, and, and sort of the diversity of reward as well. Because... In a one-day race or an amateur race, it's just winning the bike race. Right. That's it. Even in an amateur stage race, it's still it's pretty simple. Things are going to stay relatively close. It's just winning the bike race. When you go to a thing like the Tour de France, not only do you have winning the stage, you have winning the various jerseys you have getting on TV. Getting in a doomed breakaway in an amateur race doesn't do your sponsors any good because <laughs> you're not on television. You have all these other things that come into the Tour de France that really – that, that change the tactics because, and, and they alter the tactics because there are so many different ways for a team to quote win without winning. Welcome back, dear listeners, to another episode of Fast Talk. I am Kaylee Fritz, a senior editor here at Velo News, sitting across the table as always from my dear friend, Coach Trevor Connor. Trevor, you're looking very introspective at the moment. How are you today? I'm staring at that wonderful beer that Tom has brought us. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, so we have, a, we have a third individual around the table today, uh, none other than Tom Squinch, who I still am not saying that anywhere near correctly, but I'm closer now than I have been ever in the past. Tom's, you may remember, was on the podcast a couple months ago chatting team tactics and things like that. We brought him back for a similar discussion. We're hashtagging it, Tactics with Tom's. <laughs> If you have Tom's tactics questions, you may tweet at us with hashtag tactics with Tom's. That was, that was a mouthful. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of T's in that sentence. Um, hashtag Tom tactics, tactics, Tom's, Tom's tactics. Ta- I don't know. Anyway, specifically the topic that we want to touch on today, because we did talk a lot about team tactics before, is Tour de France tactics. And Tom's here has never raced the Tour de France, unfortunately. He will at some point. You said you were on the long list last year. You were probably on the short list this year and then uh, whacked your noggin pretty good at Tour California. So probably not going to Tour de France. Is that correct? Probably not. Well, no, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) So Tom's will be watching on television, just like the rest of us. But World Tour Rider definitely knows how the World Tour works. And honestly, the Tour de France is really no different from any other world tour stage race in terms of the tactics that are playing out on the ground. So that is the, that's the topic today. We want to provide you with a bit of a primer from the inside on how team tactics inside the Tour de France work. We are recording this particular episode a little bit before the Tour de France, so we're not going to be talking specifics of the race that is unfolding in front of us, but rather speaking in some generalities about the way that the tour generally unfolds and the way that individual stages unfold, how teams work, the different types of teams that are in the Tour de France, uh, the different types of stages that are in the Tour de France, and how all these things fit together to build the grand narrative storyline of the tour. And if you'd like to hear about what's going on with the tour, listen to our sister podcast, the Velo News Podcast, hashtag shameless promotion. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually, we're recording this, I'm in Boulder. However, 
time machine time, I'm actually in France and we are producing all sorts of great podcast content from the ground in France right now slash in the future, also in the past. And you should be listening to that all the time. We, we have the weekly show, weekly villainous podcast, and then we're also doing a lot of special episodes during the tour. We find really interesting individuals, chat with them, pick specific topics, sort of feature style podcasts. So we do recommend listening in. All you have to do is if you subscribe to Fast Talk, you are also subscribed to the Villainous Podcast. So it's as easy as that. Another quick time machine moment, since I'm adding this in at a much later date. And sorry, Kaylee, I don't have your Velonews podcast sound bites. We need to point out that we did not record this podcast to be a Tour de France 101. We're not going to go into the basics of the tour. We recommend if you're new to the Tour de France, you brush up on the rules. But briefly, the Tour de France is a 21-stage race. Every day, there is a winner of the particular stage, and most pro cyclists winning a single stage at the Tour would be a highlight of their career. But, in addition to the daily wins, there are several other objectives at the Tour. There is an overall winner, which is the yellow jersey wearer, and that's the person with the lowest accumulated time. There's also a points leader, which is the green jersey, and that's the person who accumulates the most points, both by how they place on the finish of each stage and multiple sprint points every stage along the way. Finally, there is a best climber's jersey, where there are points at the top of every major climb at the Tour, and if the race finishes on a climb, um, even larger points for placing highly on the stage. But that's all we're going to talk about in terms of the basics of the, the Tour de France. The key point that we want to get across is there's many different objectives at the Tour. This podcast is about understanding some of the subtleties you'll see in the race strategy. Why is one team on the front versus another? Why are breakaways allowed to get away? what the sprinters do on climbing stages, and so on. We'll start by talking about what's going on on the flat stages, and then cover the hillier stages where the GC riders come out to play. Then we'll bring it around to discussing anything that you can apply to your local races. And I'll start it off with the first question. So here's the way I think of the, the Tour de France, or the big pro races when I watch them. I used to play a fair amount of chess. I was never very good at it, but I did enjoy it. And How does I, this not surprise me at all about you, Trevor? <laughs> we used to go out to the bars at my fraternity, and when the bars closed, we came home and played chess drunk. <laughs> so I don't know if that made us cool or the ultimate nope. dorks. Does not make you cool. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe. Maybe makes you cool. I don't know. That, that might have – you know how everything's circular? That might go so far around uncool that you end up at cool again. But probably doesn't help chess tactics, though. <laughs> it really didn't. And there was a lot of wrestling involved, which I don't think is in professional chess. But I remember seeing a match between two grandmaster um, chess players. And one grandmaster took the other grandmaster's queen. Then, So you think, okay, that guy's in trouble. He just lost his queen. The other grandmaster who just lost his, his queen makes a move, and then the guy who seemed to be a queen up knocks his king over and, and gives up the game. And you watch that, and somebody who wasn't very good at chess, you just go, that's the most baffling thing I've ever, just, uh, I've ever seen. That guy just took the other player's queen and then quit because he realized he had lost the game. 
And it was because you had these two guys that were seen so far ahead in the game, they could see how this was going to play out in a way that, that the rest of us couldn't. And I think that's the way a lot of people see the Tour de France when they watch it. They see these tactics that they just don't get because these riders are the best in the world. They understand strategy so well. They see and know to do things that most of the rest of us uh, don't understand or, or wouldn't know to do. Is that Would you say that's accurate, a good way to describe yeah, it? Yeah, for sure. Sometimes that's very true. And riders can't predict what's going to happen, who's going to move next, and what what moves to look out for. Even when watching the race on television, sometimes you don't see it because you just don't feel it. Hmm. You can't feel how fast the race is in that moment. You can't feel, you can't feel how tired everyone is getting. Exactly. Like yeah. And that comes into a lot of tactics are predicated on that. You know, as armchair quarterbacks, so to speak, we sit at home, we watch on television and we feel like we can, we can see, we feel like we maybe knows, know what is happening in the race in front of us, but we don't really, because, you know, we can, we have, we can sort of infer as to how tired a rider is based on body language and things like that. We can infer on how tired a rider is just based on how far they are, they are into a stage. But until you're inside the race, you can't really tell how close people are to the limit. And I think that that is a major driver of, of tactics in bike racing. That, that's very true. And not just, not just riders and their fatigue, but also the course. The teams definitely know the courses better than we do while watching because we don't know when the next turn is coming up. And who knows, maybe after that turn, there's a crosswind and it just splits to bits. And that's why suddenly everyone's accelerating so fast that we just don't see it. Tom's so let's let's lean on your expertise a little bit. Obviously there are there are different types of teams that come to the Tour de France. Maybe you can help us just sort of the differences between a team like Quickstep and a team like Team Sky and and your own team, Canada Draypack. You come into this race with different goals and the team has been built in a different way. Maybe just run us through some of the, the different ways that, that directors and managers are building teams with an eye on, on a Grand Tour. So for sure, you could pretty much split teams actually into two. Ones that are there with one huge sprinter and ones that are there with one huge GC rider. But not all teams can afford, say, a huge sprinter or a huge GC rider. So... There's also a lot in between, but there's definitely teams with specific sprinters like Kittle. He'll have the team for him, for sure. Dimension Data will have Cavendish. And those guys will do leadouts after leadouts after leadouts. And they'll focus on the flat days. They'll focus on winning sprints. And then the other side of the spectrum is Team Sky, which has all full GC team. They will be up there in the sprints, but only to keep riders safe. They will focus more on the climbing days, more on the GC days. And then there's a, several teams in between, like Tinkoff will have... I'm sorry. There's also a team like Bor Hansgrohe <laughs> that will have uh, a rider like Sagan that has, that's going to go for the sprints and the green jersey for sure but also have GC riders and guys that could go for stages. Like and, Rafa Mica, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, one of, the, one of the results of this is that different teams, essentially the entire peloton leans on different teams on different days. 
it is a given team's job to hold the peloton together or to hold the race together to make sure that the race goes to script on different days. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. So sprint teams, for example, Marcel Kittle's squad is going to be sort of in charge of holding the race together, essentially. Letting a break go, yes, but making sure it doesn't get too big of a lead, making sure that they can still bring it back, and then pulling it together for a sprint. That sort of script that we've built for flat stages. Talk a little bit about about the way that a sprint team will approach a stage like that. So this year it's interesting because it starts with a time trial. So there will be a team that has the lead after they won, which means that not only the sprinter teams will be interested in keeping it all together, but also the team of, say, Tony Martin that wins day one. Or you guys with Taylor Finney. Or Taylor Finney that wins <laughs> day one. And Canada Draypack is on the front trying to make the break come back. But one way or another, during the stage, during the tour, there will be a moment when uh, the GC team might not be interested in keeping the break close and bringing it back for a sprint just because they're all two hours down or 20 hours down who knows (laughs) so the sprint teams for sure they have two or three riders in the beginning that will watch for the moves float around not let more riders than say six get away depending on how long the day is if it's longer than six sometimes eight is even fine because once the sprinters teams really commit, say 100Ks out, they can bring back the gap down quick. And the calculation that everyone talks about is one uh, minute per 10 kilometer, which is fairly true in uh, flat days where there's very little chance of brake surviving, but it's definitely not, not true in hillier days and uh, days that are not as straightforward. And you've kind of made your name taking advantage of those days. <laughs> yes. Two stage wins at the at the Tour of California, both sort of in similar circumstances. Uh, you were making another move to that effect this year before your crash. We won't talk too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe talk to me about the ways that, that those teams sometimes get it wrong. Uh, how, what are the ways in which a sprinter's team might, might get those stages wrong? I mean, we saw, it, we saw it a lot at the Tour of California, why might we see that more at the Tour of California than we see at, at right. the Tour de France? And one of the questions I want to ask, you said on, on a flat stage, you want to let about six to eight riders go up the road. What's happening on those days when you see a 30-man breakaway up the road? Is that just they messed up? It's chaos. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll tackle this first Kaylee's question. Uh, so for sure, wind plays a big part. If there's headwind, it's very hard to stay away. However, if you know the the second part of the course is more tailwind that gives a bigger chance to the breakaway to succeed. And then that minute per 10 kilometer, if the tailwind's pretty good, is really hard to bring back because the break's going to be going 50k an hour. And to bring that minute back, you have to go 65. Well, not, I don't know the math behind it. But About 60, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fairly close to that. And that's hard, harder than, say, when the break is going 40 and you have to go 46. Mm-hmm because of a headwind or whatever. That is definitely one way that the, that the sprinters teams mess it up. For sure, they could start chasing later, but that usually doesn't happen. And the reason why it more happens in races like California than the Tour, because the stakes are higher in the Tour, and there's more teams with uh, sprinters, and they know that these 
21 days need to be used. Mm-hmm. And that's one time of the year. Whereas Tour of California, there's several other week-long World Tour stage races along the year. And if you mess it up, you can always sort of come back and redo. Plus California in particular, I think that not everyone there is in peak form. And not as focused. Right. Everyone at the Tour de France is at peak form. Right. Very true. Yeah. So that, I mean, you, you, you end up with a couple quick step guys coming back from a break after the classics, trying to chase down really motivated breakaway. That gets a little bit tricky. Whereas you end up with a bunch of peaked quick step classics riders Mm -hmm. at the Tour de France pulling back breakaways. But the a idea, little bit easier. <laughs> the idea here is hopefully, uh, from what I'm hearing from you, is hopefully the, whatever team is controlling the race, they want a situation they can control. And that's that's why you're saying exactly. they want a smaller breakaway. Yeah. So if you got that big breakaway, it sounds like they lost control. It would probably not be a day for a sprint if there's a big break up the road. Because the teams will also just sabotage the breakaways themselves. Yep. They would just sit on and once there's, say there's 15 riders off the front, but there's two quick step guys and they want Kittle to win that sprint. They're just going to sit on. And those other 13 riders, there will be probably some, one more guy that wants to sit on because he has a sprinter and that can beat Kittle. They all just start sitting on and the riders in the break just don't work because even if they bring them to the line, they're going to get beat. And does that make the break less efficient? sort of in and of itself or is it just a, a is it demoralizing what why why does sitting on slow down a breakaway like that just because you know you're not going to win so why race for a second right because the guys that have not pulled all day they're going to exactly they're going to beat you at the line they're going to smoke you all right question i have for you is is who's deciding which team is on the front does a team just move to the front and say we're taking control today or do people expect a certain team to get on the front on these stages how does it work so say day two which is going to be still in germany after the time trial the whoever wins the time trial he's ha- going to have his team riding the front fairly early on because they want to keep the breakaway close enough so that the sprinters teams are interested and capable of bringing it back for a sprint that gives them sort of the incentive that taste a little bit of uh, success coming their way and motivates them a little bit more. So they're going to be keeping an eye on. But when they start riding, that's a good question. And it always depends, even for, say, sprint stage later on, when the GC team might not be as motivated to ride early on. It will be the teams that have the most confidence in their sprinter of winning that will start riding early. And then other teams will join in, but... For sure, if one sprinter wins two stages already and there's another sprint stage coming up, his team will be the first one riding, say, two riders, three riders. Other teams will join in for sure, but that team, just because they're the favorites, they'll be riding early and keeping the break close so that the other teams have that sense of success, a little bit of taste uh, we can win today. Throw, throw up some guys out up there. How often does it happen that you have a team on the front that the rest of the peloton says, you have no business being here, or a situation where everybody says, well, that team should be on the front, why aren't they there? Or does everybody, do all the teams pretty much know when they should be on the front and, and do their job? 
there definitely is sort of an understanding between the teams who should ride and who should stay rest up <laughs> but definitely there can be misunderstandings and that's one of the days that you could try and make the breakaway succeed when there's a little bit of rivalry between two sprinter teams and no one wants to commit and the stage is not a pure sprinter stage then they might mess it up for sure so like a lot of the stages that we've seen in recent years that are a little bit trickier they're not necessarily a pure sprint stage they're not necessarily a pure climber stage i mean it seems to me like there are very few teams that would have incentive to ride at that point who ends up on the front of the peloton i mean <laughs> like if no one is incentive to ride is it just at that point whoever has the yellow jersey is essentially you know they kind of have to ride the front at least to not let whatever the group is get like 45 minute lead yes first it first comes down to the yellow jersey and his team however depending on the how tricky the day is say uh i was saying six eight riders get in the break but if the day is like 95 percent, it'll come down to a sprint they will have only four guys in the break they will keep racing until there's only four guys in the break because four guys are easier to control than eight however if it goes over that edge of being tricky and not favorable for the sprinters the break to get in the break will be really hard because people know the sprinter teams are not going to chase so there's more people trying to get in the break here's your chance to win a breakaway and here's your chance to win from a breakaway one of the things i i wish they would do more with the tour is show that first hour or two of the flat stages because that's when absolute mayhem is happening and people are just attacking being brought back attacking more how do the teams decide that's the breakaway and let it get up? And I'm especially asking this, thinking about a lot of the athletes I work with, where in their local races, it's just the whole day is just attacks, 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 and they're instantly brought back. And there's never a point in those races where a strong enough team says, that's the right breakaway, we're going to let it go. And, and ultimately, a breakaway never does go um, in those weekend races. But it seems like there's a, a huge intelligence at a race like the Tour de France of we know exactly what breakaway we went up there and when that breakaway goes we're just going to let it go how is that done how does that happen well it already starts in the team buses because there will be teams that will want to get in the break even though they know the break uh, the chance of break succeeding is very little those are going to be the smaller french teams for sure because they want their sponsors to get theirs money worth on TV and just even showing off the jersey is uh, good enough. And maybe there are some climbing points available along the way and they'll go for those. But everyone knows that it'll come down to a sprint. So the sprinters teams, they won't put any guy in the break. If they do, it's only because the break is too dangerous and they want it to come back. There's definitely days when the breakaway actually goes like flag drops, break goes, done. Three yeah. guys up the road. Because everyone knows it's dead flat, headwind, no chance. It's a suicide Zero. mission. Yeah, it's just... Alex Howes ended up in one of those last Yeah, exa <laughs> exactly. <laughs> rode, like, rode like 200K into a headwind. <laughs> exactly. And no, and no one wants to, you know, but someone has to because they need to put on a show anyways. And they know they're going to get some TV time when they're at, at the front. Yeah, and then uh, how do they control who gets and who doesn't right. get when it's not as simple as that? There's going to be a lot of riders that don't want to get in the break. A lot of GC riders, a lot of 
super domestiques. They're not going to want to waste their energy. A lot of riders that are going for the breakaways along the way later on, they're not going to want to waste their energy. So there's actually probably, say, 30 to 40 riders that you only have to control. And that's not as hard as controlling 200. But still, how do they decide? Because there, there are a lot of attacks. How do they ultimately decide that's the one and then communicate that to the whole field? And I'm also thinking about, it always amazed me when you watch Tour de France, you know, when you turn it on and they're just starting, they say, here, let's catch you up with what's happening. There's a breakaway of eight riders up the road and they give you a list. And you know, somewhere in there is Thomas Volkler. <laughs> if Tommy is there, then it might succeed. How does <laughs> be he... careful. How does he know it's the breakaway? Or is it, do the teams actually control and say, okay, Tom's up there, we got the right mix up there, goodbye? Actually, sometimes, definitely, you can tell that, oh, this rider's up there, we can let him go. But most of the times, like a team will not, if it's a sprinter's day, a team will not want to put two riders up there. Because they're, I wouldn't say wasting two riders, but two riders are using up energy, which cuts down those 40 again to 20 okay and then as soon as there's say five riders everyone knows that they're not going to let a lot more get away <laughs> if you see five riders up the road and there's two sprinter sprinter teams close to the front you know that as soon as you try and bridge across they're going to be on your wheel and if you do bridge across they're going to be right there mm. so I mean, it kind of demotivates you it's, it essentially sounds to me like there's a role within a lot of teams that is essentially like moving billboard. Like yeah. <laughs> your only job actually is to go and get on television at some point. So it's it's almost a matter of that breakaway gets up the road. The other people who want to get in the break see that, okay, that's probably the one that's going to go away. They're not going to let me get up to it. So I miss my chance and they just exactly. don't try. Yeah. Or I have a teammate up there and I don't also try because I don't want my teammate to come back. I do have one question that I just remembered that all I right. have to ask. Every, every I get asked all the time and all our listeners want to know, why is it the breakaway is almost always caught two, three kilometers before the finish? It's timing. The reason why is because the later the break gets gets caught well yeah unless it's in the last k then it gets messy but say you want to catch the break perfect scenario between seven and two k's to go because that means that no one else is going to attack if you catch the break 50 k's out there's still 50 k's to race and someone might try and attack someone might try and get in a move that's why sometimes you see the gap go down to one minute but it's still 30 k's to go and it suddenly goes back to out to two minutes or a minute 30 or stays at a minute. But if sometimes how it happened in Tour of Romandy this year, we got in a break and the field kept us at two minutes the whole day, which is a little bit frustrating when you're in the break because you know you're, you have no chance. And then they start riding pretty hard. Gap kept coming down. Still 30 k's to race. Still one climb to race. And the team chasing us down really wanted their sprinter to win. So we just sat up in the breakaway. No one does that. But we did. Because there was still one climb to go. And if they wanted to mess with us, we would mess with them. We <laughs> sit up. We get caught. The field's all together. Which means fresher legs can attack. Simon Clark goes. A couple other guys go. And Alex Dowsett just got brought back for the sprint. And... 
what's funny, the team that chased us down didn't win. <laughs> Interesting. So, so that was kind of the revenge <clears throat> of the doomed breakaway. <laughs> so if, if they had just let you get some more time, if, they, if they'd given you four minutes, for example, and at we least would, and you had yeah. some hope, then maybe you don't do that and maybe that team wins. And we would go over that one climb and they would have to just chase us and not chase the next guys that attack. Right, the fresher guys. Exactly. Ah, sneaky, sneaky. If you feel like the strategy at the pro level when it comes to breaking away and controlling the race is all sounding very calculated, it is. Here's a conversation we had with Michael Creed, a very respected professional team manager and ex-pro himself. Creed talks about an almost Moneyball-esque pragmatism to professional race strategy. We're here with Mike Creed, who has built up a bit of a reputation as a, uh, well, genius. Genius, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, no, pre- I appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, joking aside, you, I think, you you produced results, particularly with Smart Stop, that nobody would have expected, and have definitely sort of built a bit of a reputation for yourself as someone who can take riders we wouldn't expect to be that good and pull amazing results out of them so talk a little bit about the way that you work with those with with different team members and how you sort of structure a team at a race i think it is always really important to not go off of hope and i think a lot of times with races there's like this hope factor that people rely on tremendously and i think like a lot of things that my riders would always hear me say is like frankly like I'm, we're going best practices. Like, so I don't care if we lose because m- just shooting your sheer numbers, we're going to lose a l- like way more than we'll ever win. I just want to win or I want to lose. If we lose, I want to lose in a way that we can actually say that we gave it the best shot. So a lot of that is even if situations aren't great for us or it's, we're not in the power position that we're not panicking and just maybe like flipping the card table over and thereby losing the whole race so uh one of the things i i would do was if it worked mainly for one day races but you can take the start sheet and you score each team and you go through the riders and you give them a number based on whether or not they're a favorite likely to win need a lot of luck to win can't win and you go through and you score each team and through scoring that, you suddenly kind of see the race tactics totally unfold in front of you, just at your table. And you you can see who's actually, the, this pressure is going to lie on, who's going to panic first. And you go to the mat with that, because you can't change on the fly. A lot of times you'll see like a break of 13 guys will go, and this one team has two guys in it. And because they have two guys in it, the natural inclination is, well, that team doesn't have to work. They have two guys in it. But then you look at those two guys and you say, versus those other 11, the only way those two guys have a chance of winning is if the other 11 get let off course. <laughs> so actually, while that team director comes to me and tries to force me to maybe do a little bit more work, if they have a stronger team than me, if their score is higher, no, we're not working. You f***ed up by putting those two losers in the break. <laughs> You're going to lose. So if you want to lose this race, let's do it. But I know if I put my guys in the front right now and you're higher score than me, I lose the race. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm super mad at my team for missing that break because now I have to play this bluff game. But we're playing the bluff game. And I'm not going to bail you out. So if you guys don't catch the break, 
that's something that I have to go back to my owner and explain, and I have to go and yell at the riders about, fine, fair enough. But we're giving best chances to win the race, and me going and panicking and killing my team while stronger teams sit behind me and capitalize on that, that's not the way to win a race. Do you think pro cycling is often a little bit too uh, maybe run by the heart? I mean, what you're describing sounds like kind of hyper-pragmatism. Yeah, it's very... um, I love that it is because then I could take advantage of it. But I wouldn't want to change it. So uh, cycling is about passion. There, There's movements. There are this. There is the fun of the team attack and, and a sneak spot. There is a thing. But like what people don't realize is that you have to be strong enough to pull it off. And that, that full team attack in the crosswind, those are really strong guys. You know, like you can't have one guy who's a top 15 guy and then a bunch of top 60 guys and do that kind of damage to the field. It's not going to work. So all those things, while very beautiful and fun and exciting for racing there's very few times that that's actually even a conversation so like what is what is team sky doing for you know much of the first week of the tour we don't know who's winning (laughs) because we recorded it beforehand but we do know that after that time trial it's a couple flat stages and then there's a big day on planche de belfi what happens in the four stages in between there. What what is what is Team Sky doing? Uh, you know, what are the rest of the G- GC squads doing in that time? So I think for Sky, the perfect scenario is Froome gets second because in the he time wins, trial, yeah, because yeah. if he wins in ta- the time trial, they're going to have to use up energy already. Right. But if he's second, he's close enough ahead of all the other guys, so they don't have to worry about them too much. And um, they just sort of stay out of trouble, which means they look for crosswinds. They look for small towns with tricky sections where there could be crashes. They make sure that inside the final 3K, Froome is with the main group, which means even if he does does have a mechanical or crashes, he still has the same time. However, maybe in the Tour de France, who knows? they put it out to 5k because there's been talk about that and uh, it might happen. Right. Because there's been a lot of chatter about GC teams riding near the front on sprint stages, the end of sprint stages and essentially sprinters team saying, get these guys out of here. They're making it more dangerous for us, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I mean, if you're trying to protect a GC rider, it's it's what you got to do is you, you you have to keep that rider up front, right? But at the same time, you are you're kind of in the sprinter's space at that point. Yeah, I don't see why it would not get extended to say 5k. Mm-hmm. It would make it a little bit safer. Will that change that the GC teams ride the front 2k's in? Probably not, because <laughs> they still be careful some, of gaps and stuff. There's still yeah. sometimes a slight little gap and as soon as there's a slight little gap you get a second two Mm -hmm. seconds three seconds and usually the grand tours don't come down to just seconds but (laughs) you don't want to take that chance do you seconds add up yeah (laughs) jiro was 31 so exactly it can always be close but so ultimately the gc teams are just trying to protect their gc rider and and make sure that that he is near the front at any dangerous point in the race exactly and and using as little energy as possible exactly Keeping him safe, keeping him hydrated, fueled, out of trouble. Say that, be that crosswinds, be that dogs on the road. 
tackled the dogs, <laughs> keep them out in trouble. So what would happen in the Peloton if, let's say, Chris Froome wins the time trial on the first day? So they have the leader's jersey. And second day, the race starts up. Everybody looks for Team Sky to get on the front. And team just goes, no, we're good. Somebody else can do it. What, what would be the response to that in the Peloton? Sooner or later, the sprinters' teams would take it over. But would there be a, a reaction to Team Sky? Would there be a penalty within the peloton for them? For people, you definitely would make a little bit of enemies along the way. And people would definitely not help you out later on in the race. When they could, but they don't have to. But for sure, it would come down to sprints 99%. Anyways. Because Cause it's the it's, tour and they're not going to Because it's the tour and no one's going to take any chances. Yeah. But it, there would certainly be some. There would not. There would not be happy faces at the finish line. <laughs> not all happy faces. So. Let's take a quick break. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of the next generation D Zero power meter platform. D Zero is packed with ten years of technical innovations. It also offers a choice of Bluetooth, low energy, or ANT plus data transmission and broader compatibility. Get the power meter chassis or the D0 Power Meter Spider for power-ready OEM bikes. Find out more at quark.com slash D0. Let's move on to climbing. There's the climbing stages of the Tour de France. Starting with Planche de Belfi, uh, and then across France into the Pyrenees and back up into the Alps. There's a whole lot of climbing packed into the second two weeks of this Tour de France. Climbing stages are going to be treated very, very differently from sprint stages. And part of that is just the fact that after the first climbing stages, after Planche de Belfi, the GC picture has been figured out a little bit, right? And at the very least, there are now at least half the field or more, most of the field, that is essentially out of GC contention. Enough so that they're not going to steal a yellow jersey for a day. They're not going to... All that stuff is very, very unlikely. Let's start with the sprint teams again. What what are these teams doing as the as the race heads into the mountains? I mean, they just essentially give up and hang out in the Gruppetto and <laughs> try to survive. What are they What are they doing at this point? The biggest part of that team would probably just hang out and try and survive each day. There's definitely a rider or two that are there for the sprints, but also they're good enough climbers that they can go for stages. And if there's a stage where the GC riders have battled it out, but it's too hard for the sprinters, they might give a crack. They might try and get in the break. Or maybe they have a guy that's going for the climber's jersey. Who knows? It's all, it all depends on how sprint-specific that team is. Say quick step, they, I'm not sure who, who they're sending exactly, but they might end up not having anyone in the break and just focusing on the Gruppetto and ma- calculating the time cuts. How much uh, How much time have you spent in the Gruppetto in your career? Not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the Gruppetto is mostly formed in the Grand Tours, and I've never done one mm-hmm. yet. So I wouldn't say I've spent a lot of time. I have, however, finished 50 minutes down in uh, the Gruppetto in Tour of Portugal. And that was very hard. <laughs> Not fun. I guess so. My, my my that was a leading question toward how exactly the Gruppetto is uh, policed, how it functions, uh, and obviously, if if you haven't spent a ton of time there, maybe you can't. Maybe you're not the best guy to answer that. But I would imagine that even even some time in the Gruppetto would give you a pretty good idea of how that works and and who's doing 
time cut calculations and who's setting the pace and things like that. So before you answer that, a really important distinction to make. I remember doing an interview with Carter Jones, who went over and raced in Europe for a couple of years, and he's a climber. And I said, what was the biggest surprise when you went over to the Pro Tour races? And he said, I couldn't believe how fast the sprinters could climb. They're not back there because that's the fastest they can go. They're, they're choosing to go that pace. They could go faster. They just don't have an interest in wasting that energy. That's true because they're saving the energy for the sprint days. Yeah. And the fresher you have the legs, the better chance you can win the sprint. You definitely try and hang on as long as you can because you don't want to be in the Corpetto. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like you don't want to be chasing time cut. You want to be in front of the time cut and you don't want to be riding the wind. So you try and stay with the group as long as you can. But once you're done, you look around with the guys that are around you and form a little group, start riding, see if there's a group in front of you or behind you. There might be a team car coming up. The team car gives you some info. There is a group of 20 guys up there. Just 30 seconds. Come on, push it, get, get there. there. Or... 50 guys are coming from the back. You're just wasting your energy here in the wind. Just wait up. It won't matter. That's how the Gruppetto forms. But once it's formed, depending on how close or far from the finish line you are, the race is on for you as well, possibly, yeah. to chase the to, to chase the time cut. And as we know, the sprinter teams won't have that many riders up the road. So they'll have definitely at least one team car with them that'll give them time checks, maybe tell them who's winning, maybe give them a pizza. <laughs> it's a little easier for them, but my understanding, and please correct me on this, it can be really tough for uh, domestiques on the, the more GC-focused teams uh, when they get popped, if they get popped early, because they might get a bottle from the car as they're getting popped. But then they have another three hours to race and they're not getting anything. Whatever those two water bottles they have when they're popped, that, that's got to get them through the next three hours. Yes. You they wouldn't get any assistance from their own team car. But on miserable days, I've seen riders take jackets from other teams and put them on. And everyone shares, shares the burden, so to say. Mm -hmm. And teams help out. No one's We're all in the same game and we're all here to just put on a good show. Fair enough. All right. Sprinters teams in, in climbing stages, nah, probably not the most interesting thing. <laughs> and, and not a thing you would probably see much on TV. Right. That's kind of why I asked. You know, I'm just, I'm just interested in how – I'm always interested in how the things that don't happen on television yeah. go down. Let's talk about climber teams. Let's talk about GC teams in particular coming into climbing stages. I'm sure you've sat in team meetings before climbing stages when you have a good climber and the team – what are what are you usually talking about? I mean, is it, is it which climbs are hardest? What the climbs look like? What teams to pay attention to? What what goes down in those team meetings before a climbing stage when you got Pierre Roland in your team? You talk about everything. You talk about everything about starting from the race course. Who who are the teams to watch out for? Which teams will probably just ride the front till everyone gets dropped and then let Chris Froome win? <laughs> I don't know who that team would be. <laughs> but every team has their own characteristics a little bit even. And you definitely have to know the climbs, how hard they are, where are they, which ones are the important ones, how are the descents, because they might be 
even more important sometimes if the climb is easy but the descent is hard that means there's going to be a lot of riders at the top of the climb but if someone pushes it on the descent it may split so sometimes a climb will be the hardest in the last 500 meters when everyone just sprinting for the downhill <laughs> that's very true do they ever take notes or are you just sort of assuming that you're going to get all this information in your radio again later you do get the information in the radio, but it's always nice to have information on your stem, which the directors prepare usually, which have sprint points, start of the climbs, finish of the climbs, and uh, not always, but most of the times also percentage. And that's another thing you definitely discuss in the team meeting is where the feed zone is going to be. Are there going to be some extra uh swanyers along the way on top of the climbs so if you know there's a swanyer on top of the climb you can always throw your bottle and just get one on the top right save a little weight yeah but at the end of the day once you know the race course then it does actually come down to what the tactics are going to be and it's very hard to predict even for world tour teams with years and years of experience so you sometimes have to do it on the fly, do it in the race. Definitely, though, there's a set plan going into the race. That brings up road captains. So from what I know, uh, and I've obviously never raced in the World Tour, <laughs> but from what I hear and what I've, and, you know, I've discussed this with a couple of different riders and, and directors and things, when the proverbial shit hits the fan, those road captains become very, very important in, in terms of sort of resetting tactics and keeping everyone together and things like that how exactly does that role play out and then who tends to take those roles uh, in the teams that you've been on so for us a lot of times it's simon clark mm -hmm. pretty much every race he does he's the team captain road captain it's because of the years of experience he has and the races he done he's done and also because what type of rider he is because you wouldn't put a sprinter a team captain road captain sorry because he's not going to be there after the second climb. <laughs> and it's not going to be worth it. Not so, so useful in the Gruppetto. <laughs> not so useful in the Gruppetto. But you definitely have a very versatile rider that's a road captain. One that's good on his feet. And the reason why you have him is because the information sometimes, because of we're in the mountains, there's not that much connection. The TV might be down. Radios might not be working. The team car might be too far. And it shit's hitting the fan. <laughs> and it's everywhere. Right. So you need to make those quick decisions. And that's exactly when the team captain, road captain, comes in. I mean, he does he literally just like ride up and yell at people? Like, hey. He usually doesn't yell. <laughs> that's not a good indication that things are going well. <laughs> <laughs> but... He definitely has, even even if the radio is not working back to the car, it usually still is between the riders because we're still close by. Right. And whoever needs to hear it, hears it. He might say, look out for the next two Ks because there's a kicker coming up. And if there's two more guys up the road, then we're in big trouble. Hmm. And then you really keep your eyes open. And if anyone goes, you just straight away follow. You don't hesitate. You don't question the road captain. <laughs> I mean, we talked about this actually last time you were on the podcast, the, sort of the, the, the creation of roles, not like a, a distinct plan, right? And so 
is that essentially what he's doing? Is he's, he's maybe changing the roles of riders out on, out on the road? Definitely to some point. For sure, Froome's not going to go for the sprint if it's a sprinter's day. <laughs> but to some extent, if he sees that another rider's suffering, whereas mm-hmm. someone's on a great day, he might switch, his, switch those roles up. Or we usually try and talk, communicate in between each other and communicate back to the car if suddenly we're feeling that we're not up to the task that we were assigned on uh, the team meeting on the bus. So that also, if it's a good day and it's not too crazy, then it might even come from the team car. Hmm. It's not always only the road captain decides different tactics along the way. So this brings up the topic of radios, which was a point of contention a couple of years ago and no one seems to really care anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was like this big spat between riders and the UCI and the UCI said that if you took radios away, the racing would get more exciting. Uh, it would get less predictable. And the riders said, Hey, we kind of need those to like know when there's a car in the road or whatever. Where do you fall on the radio debate? If you had to pull yourself out as a, as a fan of pro cycling, do you think, do you honestly think that radios make the racing better or worse? As a fan? I yeah. am a fan. <laughs> you are a fan. <laughs> Anyways, uh, to the point. I definitely think that radios have their place and they should be used. However, I think even if um, they took away the radios, there definitely would be a couple less crashes because the directors wouldn't be on the radios. This is the time to get to the front. This is the time you need to be at the front because there's only room at the front for like 20 guys. <laughs> so if you tell 180 guys that you need to be at the front, then someone's going to squeeze in there and he's going to go down right? or take someone down. Well, I, I kind of like all in the top 180 riders. <laughs> that is very true. In, front, in front of the team car. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I am in front of you. I am in front of you. <laughs> On the flip side, when you watch the tour now, they have so much live data. They have a bunch of people's power data up, a mm-hmm. bunch of people's heart rate data up, where they're all located uh, because they all have the GPS. Are any of the team managers actually watching those live feeds? And does that they affect the race? <laughs> they should be. Yeah. I don't know. Probably not. That data is usually pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, it's not. It's, really it's not super it's, accurate yeah. either. Because sometimes they forget to um, calibrate the power meters, yeah. right? Which happens because there's so much stuff going on, and totally makes sense. But for sure, speed, heart, uh, heart rate, yeah, speed, heart rate, and uh, your location is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could go by that and see. Oh. Someone stopped. Why is he stopping? Why is he taking off his shirt? Uh, yes. Yeah, actually, I, I was watching the Giro broadcast for a little while. I think it was I think it was Nibley's numbers that were that popped up, and it was like they're going up one of the final climbs, and he's chasing Nairo Quintana. It was like he's doing two hundred and twelve watts or something like that. I was like, I don't think, I don't think he's doing. He's not that light. I don't no. think he's doing two hundred and twelve watts. No, he's watts. not. <laughs> and he heart rate like thirty five kilos. Heart rate is individual, as we know. So right. Everyone should have to give give uh, broadcast their their threshold. Yeah. <laughs> Make it interesting. Like, oh damn, Tom's is, Tom's going real hard right now, <laughs> and he's he's going backwards. <laughs> How's that possible? We've we've kind of gotten off topic here, Trevor. I think you had a question yeah. to bring us back on topic. Along those lines with the radios, they talk about the glory days or whatever you want to call it of, of the Tour de France when you would have. GC riders breaking away on the first of five coals and stay away the whole day and put 10 minutes into his rival. And 
now it seems that the GC guys tend to sit in and it really comes down to the final climb. What has brought about that change? Or is that just the UCI and some older people like me just being reminiscent about days that really didn't ever exist? It's definitely not the radios that have <laughs> changed that. However, I do think that just the field is a lot stronger. So there's more guys that can follow if someone goes fairly hard on a climb and gets a gap, which means that he's never alone. He's never alone for five calls. They might get in a group, which we've seen, not five, say two, three climbs from the from the finish where they try and split it up and try and get away. Say Contador always does some crazy moves, which are so exciting. <laughs> it's definitely a different era. Oh, no, that's stupid. stupid <laughs> Everyone says that. It's just different tactics because there's more riders that can follow. There's just the field is stronger. There's not that big of a difference between the best guys and the guys that are in the top 10 still. People are more attentive. People have seen what those attacks have brought. And it's very hard to keep going as hard on the first of five as on the fifth of five. I think that one of the things you said there is probably a major point, which is that the level is higher across right. the peloton than it used to be. Where, whereas Eddie Merckx and, and some of his compatriots maybe stood head and shoulders above much of the peloton, the reality is that Chris Froome and some of those top guys, yes, they are faster, but they're not that much faster. They're not faster to the point where they could go and do something crazy and have it actually work. Exactly. And that's probably the major difference, I think in my uninformed opinion. <laughs> so let's start taking this to how can our listeners take some of these, the, the strategy that you're seeing and apply it to races that aren't the Tour de France. So, so the weekend race, and I'll actually start with the, the reverse of that. What are some of the aspects of strategy that you see in the Tour de France that could only exist in the Tour de France? because of either the, the length of the race or the nature of the teams or technology or whatever that you wouldn't see and wouldn't want to apply at the, the three-hour race, local race on the weekend? Well, for sure, the biggest difference is that the Tour de France, after day two, is longer than your weekend. So there's bigger time gaps in between riders. And there's definitely guys that are 20 minutes down and that no one cares if they go, go and win the stage. Well, not no one cares, but less people care. So they might get to go in the break and the break might succeed just because every single rider in there is two hours down. And that's something that definitely doesn't happen in one-day races or even weekend races. And those are actually the most exciting days to watch yeah. when the breakaway might succeed, but might not succeed, depending on who's there, depending on how strong it is. And those are the days that getting the break is really hard. And I think that this year as well, they're going to show a lot more stages from start to beginning. And I'd suggest everyone listening to tune in to those days or the days that start with an uphill. Those are going to be... <laughs> You'll, you'll be watching with a smile on your face. <laughs> Those are always the days that I, I wander around the paddock in the morning and see all the all the riders warming up on trainers and just looking totally miserable because yes. <laughs> they know they know how much that first hour is going to hurt. They know it's going to be real bad. I, I think that you know the major difference, and this is essentially what you were alluding to, the major difference between Tour de France and 
amateur bike racing or even one day racing is essentially just the diversity of goals that everybody has and, and sort of the diversity of reward as well. Because in a one day race or an amateur race, it's just winning the bike race. Right. That's it. Even in an amateur stage race, it's still, it's pretty simple. Things are going to stay relatively close. It's just winning the bike race. When you go to a thing like the Tour de France, not only do you have winning the stage, you have winning the various jerseys you have getting on TV. Getting in a doomed breakaway in an amateur race doesn't do your sponsors any good because <laughs> yeah. you're not on television. You have all these other things that come into the Tour de France that really that, that change the tactics. because and, and they alter the tactics because there are so many different ways for a team to, quote, win without winning. You also, frankly, have a, a survival um, aspect to it. Everybody's looking at we have to race every day pretty much for three weeks. And a, t- a team like Team Sky is actually going to be happy to say, let the breakaway go. It's going to make the day easier for us. We don't want to have to be chasing everything down and driving at a huge pace every single day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. How do we apply this to amateur racing? I mean, we're talking we, – we, everything we've been saying is essentially that the Tour de France is – Almost nothing like amateur racing. (laughs) Well, I think the one commonality you have is teams with different goals. You are still going to have teams that show up to the the one-day race on the weekend that have a big sprinter and want to finish in the sprint, where you're going to have other teams that want to finish in the breakaway. Exactly. Or riders, even individual riders. If you know there's a couple riders in your race that always win from the break or are really good time trialists, they're not going to wait for the sprint. And that's what... That's who you look for. And you sort of try and read the race. That's also what you do watching the tour. You try and see, maybe you see the flags wave and maybe you see where the turn is coming up and you can predict what's going to happen. You do the same in your race. You check out the course beforehand. Definitely check out if there's any climbs or something. Tricky parts. The more you know, the better. That's the first thing we find out before a race, and that's the first thing you should look for. What do you do if you are the sprinter team at the local one-day race? How do you work as a team to to try to set up for that sprint? That's a pretty hard one, because in a local race, everyone attacks. And even if you you think, oh, we'll just let these two guys roll off and bring them back, that's never going to happen. Unless you really put your authority on it and for sure the first 20 minutes you you can't really do anything about it everyone's going to attack cuz everyone's still lungs are full of oxygen and everyone still wants to go but if you have enough riders at the front of the race and other teams or other riders see you chase down every single move as soon as there's more than 3 riders you chase them down if they see that and that it keeps happening and keeps happening and no matter what you do, it does happen, they will have less incentive to attack and the attacks will be weaker. And that's how you let that breakaway go. That's how you make those three guys just hang there in 20 seconds and bring them back in the last two laps and win the sprint. But you have to have an awfully strong team to do that. So it sounds like that's you're saying... True. At the local race, if you're a big sprinter, you have a team with a big sprinter, there, there's a little bit of hoping that the field's going to be together at the end. You can't control it quite the same. It's definitely a lot harder, just because the race is also a lot shorter. So what do you do if you are a team that wants to try to win in a breakaway at the, that local one-day race? No stopping. You just you have to put your riders 
in the breakaway and you have to anticipate other people trying to bridge. And if there's three guys with one of your guys is good, four guys with one of your guys is also good, but less. So you try and just follow the guys attacking. You don't attack yourself if you have a teammate in the breakaway. You just keep following. And that's what the sprinter teams would do. They would not necessarily chase the four guys down. They would just follow the fourth guy across and in, in return, bring it all back together. That just means that they wouldn't have to spend as much time in the wind, but for sure, it's still not easy. I mean, I think maybe the best comparison to amateur racing within actual pro cycling is maybe that first hour when everyone's trying to make the breakaway, right? Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. just break after break after break. And so you can use some of the same tactics to kill breaks as you would just in the pro field. I mean, if you're, if you're a sprinter team, yeah, you just keep sending guys up the road to not work, right? Exactly. That's a good and way to kill a break regardless of, of the level. And perfect scenario, they're not bridging themselves. They're following someone's wheel, right? Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I get asked that question by riders on my team all the time. I got into the breakaway. We had one guy who wouldn't work, so we all sat up. What do we do? And, and you do see that a lot at races where it's the lowest common denominator that sets the breakaway. And I'm always telling my team, the guys on my team, look, ignore that guy. Put your heads down if you have enough other guys that will work. Get your gap, and then you can figure out what to do with that guy later. But if you always sit up and wait for the field every time you have somebody that's not going to work, you're always going to sit up. Very true. Well, last, last question. question. Yeah. So what do you do in that one day local race when you're a GC team? When you're a GC team, you just look for the GC, like the other riders that are on close to GC and you follow them. You look for the guys that are close enough to pass you and focus on them mostly. Focus on not letting them get away. But if your team is strong enough and you're a sprinter and would come down to sprint, you just ride for a sprint. Okay, I was impressed by that answer, but I am going to say if you're a GC team at the one-day local race, you do your homework. <laughs> also true. <laughs> I was wondering about that question, Trevor. I, I was kind well, of odd, but... I think I was, Tom's is just assuming right. that you misspoke. <laughs> I was being a sprinter. There's always so. a GC. There's GC races and local races. Since I can't sprint at all, it doesn't matter what race I am. I am riding as a GC rider. There you go. <laughs> I think that is about it for today. We, uh, Tom's, thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you. Hashtag tactics with Tom's was, uh, was excellent once again. We will definitely have you in again because you're in Boulder pretty frequently, which is very uh, handy for us. Oh, uh, for just, me too. We can just call you right in here. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. This has been another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment when you're there. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the VeloNews Podcast, particularly over the next few weeks because they are going to be giving you all sorts of great analysis of the Tour de France. Tour de France, it's awesome. I'm, to- I'm currently in France and Boulder at the same time. It's amazing. Kelly's quite talented. <laughs> that podcast covers news about the week of cycling, which will be all Tour de France for the next few weeks. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production of Connor Coaching and Velonews, which is owned by Competitor Group.
The thoughts and opinions expressed in Fast Talk are those of the individual. In the case of Tom's, it was actually quite intelligent. <laughs> For Kelly Fretz, oh no, no, I gotta say it. Tom Skunch. 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 Could enough. you please say it? Skoinch. 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 Thank you. Tom Skoinch. Tom uh. Skoinch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening. Thanks.